0: Mortimer!
1: Mortimer! Was ever feather so lightly blown to and fro as is
0: this multitude, the name of Henry V hails into a hundred mischiefs and makes them leave me desolate.
2: Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about Henry VI, Part 2, by William Shakespeare. At the end of Part 1, we saw the Duke of Suffolk promise the king he would secure the hand of Margaret of Anjou to be Henry's queen. And in our very first scene of this play, Suffolk is returned from France to duly present Margaret to King Henry who is so overcome at her grace that he says, "...he from wondering falls to weeping joys, such is the fullness of his heart's content." But typically, the much-deceived Henry has just welcomed another false ally into his court. Suffolk and Margaret are secret lovers. Their desire for each other and for power drives the action of the first half of the play. Henry is sidelined further by the continued rise of Richard, Duke of York, who by the end of part two has kicked off the Wars of the Roses, With the first battle of St Albans. To make matters worse, Henry's protector, his uncle Gloucester, brother of Henry V, is undone, first by the treachery and pride of his wife, then by the opportunism of his enemies. In the last play, we talked a lot about silence. At every turn, trouble was brewing in the dark, only simmering in public. Sworn enemies gave an outward show of brotherhood, and their peace-loving king was happy. But today's play brings everything to the boil, and to great effect, which is perhaps why W. H. Auden called Part 2 the most dramatically satisfying of the three parts. In Part 1, we hopped back and forth across the channel and between two major plot threads, a losing war with France and a looming civil war at home. By contrast, in Henry VI Part 2, attention rarely strays away from Henry's court, and even with its enormous cast of characters, it feels more unified and claustrophobic. It is a play crammed with event, and the upheavals, betrayals, and deaths pile up with every scene. Unfolding like a political thriller, each scene works to move the king and country closer to disaster. Michael Taylor has said that there may be no better introduction to Shakespeare's genius as a writer of history plays than Henry VI Part II. The play is thought to have been written in around 1591, in keeping with the conventional theory that part one was written at a later date than parts two and three. Now this is, of course, still debated, but since I spoke at length in my episode on part one about the possible composition order of these plays, I won't spend too long on the issue this time. Because apart from anything else, this play has textual controversies all of its own, which we'll talk about instead. I also mentioned last time that while these plays seem to have been popular in their own day, later they fell out of favour, and since its first performance, it was another 270 years before Henry VI Part II was performed on its own. You could have heard parts of the play in those intervening years, but only in adaptations that ran the Henry VI plays together. In 1681, the dramatist John Crown staged a two-part version of the trilogy. And in the early 1720s, the teenage son of Collie Kibber, Theophilus, made his own heavily abridged adaptation, which his father acted in. Then in 1723, Ambrose Phillips drew on the first two parts of Henry VI to create an adaptation based around Humphrey, the Duke of Gloucester. In 1817, Edmund Keane starred in a play based on Richard, Duke of York, using material from all three Henry plays. Henry VI has also often been staged in conjunction with the final play in the tetralogy, Richard III. In the 1960s, John Barton and Peter Hall at the RSC slimmed the four plays down to three parts, calling the whole series The Wars of the Roses, and each part Henry VI, Edward IV, and Richard III. Both my guests for these run of episodes on Henry VI have worked on adaptations of the plays, and so they have some experience in what it's like cutting them down. Hayley Backrack has worked on a version for The Globe, while Owen Horsley is co-directing a new production for the RSC, due in 2022. I want to thank both Hayley and Owen, as well as Danielle Farrow, who is once again providing us with dramatic readings from the play. To get us started on part two, I asked Owen whether or not theatregoers were missing
3: out on not hearing this play in full. Um, I guess so. It's kind of interesting. So the, the production that I'll be working on with the RSC is a collaboration uh, with Greg, who's the artistic director, who is the font of all Shakespeare knowledge. And it's, it's very interesting to kind of go through the history of these plays. But I guess the, the popularity of these plays is, is often down to the fact that there are not many places that can do them. Mm. because they are epic epic pieces of theater and you know part 2 i think has the biggest cast list of any shakespeare play wow so they're not easy to they're not easy to 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 mount actually as productions mm. so i think they've kind of turned into these kind of event pieces of theater so they'll do them, for example, places at like the RSC, they'll do them like every 10 years, as opposed to doing, you know, the Romeo and Juliet's and the Midsummer Night's Dreams on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, I think audiences love them in terms of the scale of them. Mm. And it feels like, you know, as soon as we announced that we were doing The War of the Roses, or our version of part one, two, and three, I mean, audiences were extremely excited about it.
2: Henry VI part two moves at a breakneck pace. In the first scene alone we have the arrival of Margaret, the Duke of Gloucester feuding with the haughty cardinal Beaufort, and Richard, Duke of York, making explicit to the audience his desire to grapple with the House of Lancaster and end Henry's bookish rule. In the next scene we meet a new character, the Duchess of Gloucester, Eleanor Cobham, who wafts into the play with a shiver of the supernatural. First, her usually indomitable husband, Humphrey, confides in her that he has had a troubling dream of severed heads, before leaving her to unfold her own plot of summoning spirits assisted by a witch. The spectacle of witchcraft appears to have been popular in Elizabethan theatre. We've already seen Joan of Arc talking to her fiends in part one, and it's possible that Shakespeare was inspired to include such moments by depictions of sorcery in Christopher Marlowe's Dr Faustus. The Duchess of Gloucester's reason for dabbling in the dark arts is ambition. She responds to Humphrey with her own dream, that she sat in seat of majesty at Westminster, with Henry and his new queen kneeling before her. After Humphrey leaves, the duchess says, Follow I must. I cannot go before, while Gloucester bears this base and humble mind. Were I a man, a duke and next of blood, I would remove these tedious stumbling blocks and smooth my way upon their heedless necks. Her co-conspirators are Roger Bolingbroke, a conjurer, Marjorie Jourdain, a witch, and two priests, Southwell and Hume. It is the latter who betrays the Duchess and is rewarded for it by being strangled along with his fellow priest and the conjurer. Marjorie becomes the second character in the trilogy to speak with a supernatural member of the dramatist's personae, and the second to be burnt for being a witch. Joan of Arc spoke to characters listed as fiends in part one, and here Marjorie outdoes her in witchery by actually getting a reply out of a spirit. Of course, in performance this has often been played as a scam. The character called spirits lines end up coming from Marjorie herself, or one of her co-conspirators, in order to humour the Duchess of Gloucester. But it should be noted that the script, as with the stage directions in the case of Joan, play the supernatural interactions straight. They are even, in the case of part two, accompanied by thunder and lightning. What's more, the prophecies made by the spirit are all later vindicated. Of the king, the spirit says, the duke yet lives that Henry shall depose, but him outlive and die a violent death. It's a little riddling and not quite clear who shall die a violent death, but since both Henry and the Duke of York will meet one in part three, we have to credit the spirit for hedging its bets. Of Suffolk, it predicts, by water shall he die, and take his end, and we won't have to wait as long to see the spirit proved right on that one. Suffolk is exiled and en route to France, murdered at sea by pirates in Act four. Finally, of Somerset, the spirit says, "Let him shun castles; safer shall he be upon the sandy plains than where castles mounted stand. One of Shakespeare's sources, Edward Hall, tells us that Somerset had been warned to eschew old castles. Richard, the son of York, kills him at the Battle of St. Albans and afterwards says. So lie thou there. For underneath an alehouse paltry sign, the castle in St Albans, Somerset hath made the wizard famous in his death." The name of the wizard the Duchess gets involved with immediately catches the eye, Bolingbroke, name of the usurper of Richard II, here the name of someone involved in prophesying the downfall of King Henry. But this is no symbolic creation of Shakespeare's. Bolingbroke, Jourdain, Southwell and Hume are all taken from history and the Duchess of Gloucester, Eleanor Cobham, was indeed sent at the Isle of Man for her involvement in the plot. To this day, her ghost is said to haunt the place of her imprisonment, Peel Castle. Shakespeare seems to have been gifted two strokes of fortune by history. Not only the name of Bolingbroke, the conjurer, but Marjorie, the witch, resembling the name of Henry's powerful and bewitching new queen. In the play, after Bolingbroke demands the spirit return to the burning lake, in Swagger's York, to arrest them, saying, Lay hands upon these traitors and their trash. No sooner have we been treated to this remarkable séance than the lights of common sense have come on and all the supernatural paraphernalia is swept away. The whole subplot is wrapped up by the end of the second act, with Eleanor exiled and shamed as a bedlam-brainsick duchess. But the episode, strange and spectacular as it is, is no diversion from the plot. The Duchess's necromantic dabbling leads to the embarrassment and eventual isolation of her husband, the Duke. As Henry's protector, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, is the last obstacle to all those clamouring for Henry's dethronement. We've already mentioned the adaptations placing Gloucester and York as their main character, and as recently as 2018, Jeanne O'Hare wrote an adaptation that placed Queen Margaret at the fore. Opinion is divided on who is the main part of these plays – John Barton said of Part 2 that the central action concerns Henry's relationship with Duke Humphrey of Gloucester and their ultimate failure to help one another. Gloucester himself is the principal character. He is conciliatory, unselfish, clear sighted and able, but he has a turbulent temper which is self destructive and ultimately undoes him. But even Gloucester is dead by Act 3. I asked Hayley Bachrach why, at this point in his career, Shakespeare was writing plays with no obvious star role. Has this got any significance? Is this because the the playwriting of a younger playwright, or perhaps at the time, was a bit scrappier? Or uh, was the celebrity of actors a kind of new thing or or a rising thing?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. And I wish I was better positioned to answer it in terms of celebrity. I think... My sense is that it would be easier to answer that question if we knew for certain what company the plays were written for. Mm. Because it could certainly be that um, it was a more sort of egalitarian, collaborative company structure and whoever he was writing it for at that time, maybe he wasn't as familiar with the company. And so he just sort of like leveled the playing field because he didn't really know as well as he later would the like strengths and interests of the players. Or maybe it's a case that it looks really flat to us, but they had some star actor who placed in a certain role suddenly it made it seem like the play was entirely about that character um I think it's hard to know without um without knowing precisely what company was performing these plays I think that question about celebrity is super interesting I really wish that I I knew how to answer it
2: (laughs) (laughs) well it's just it's curious isn't it because you see um You know, like Tamburlaine, plays like that, that they seem like star vehicles. And you you get that before you even know anyone's name, like Burbage Mm -hmm. or Alain or that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. If Shakespeare did write this play before part one, then he began his entire saga with the arrival of Margaret of Anjou to the English court. Something that would have a certain justice, as Margaret not only dominates this play and its sequel, but she is the only historical character to appear in four plays. Though she says little in her first appearance, by the time we next see her, she is already railing against Gloucester's hold on the king, and expressing her disappointment that Henry doesn't live up to the testimony of her lover, Suffolk. All his mind is bent to holiness, to number Ave Mary's on his beads. His champions are the prophets and apostles, his weapons holy sores of sacred wit. His study is his tilt yard, and his loves are brazen images of canonised saints. We saw how part one suggested an equivalence between Joan of Arc and Margaret, these two French enchantresses, these wicked women, the latter entering the story on the heels of the former. But it is important to keep Margaret's fleeting appearance in part one in mind and remember how she herself has been enchanted, not by spirits, but by Suffolk. When he promised to set a precious crown upon her head, he did so with the implicit threat of a captor. As Margaret herself realised, To be a queen in bondage, she said, is more vile than a slave in base civility. By part two, the power dynamic has shifted. Margaret not only outranks the man who took her away from France, she soon proves herself the more cunning, passionate and daring of the pair. After a whole play's worth of treachery simmering in the shadows, it is a jolt in more ways than one when Margaret slaps the Duchess of Gloucester in the face. This comes after the Duchess has divulged her own secret plot to us, and already Margaret has singled her out as having ideas above her station. That proud dame, she says to Suffolk, sweeps it through the court with troops of ladies, more like an empress than Duke Humphrey's wife. It's possible to see the uncourtly box around the ears from Margaret as the first overt act of violence leading to civil war. And while Suffolk is full of plans and statesmanship, Margaret has qualities that are much more dramatically satisfying. She is impulsive and outrageous. Slapping the royal aunt in front of the king and a host of conniving nobles makes a mockery of all their careful, seemly treason. Shakespeare found the disparity between his king and queen laid bare in his sources. Edward Hall, author of The Union of the Two Noble and Illustrious Families of Lancaster and York, describes Henry VI as, a man of meek spirit, of simple wit, preferring peace before war, rest before business, honesty before profit, and quietness before labour. While Margaret, he describes as, a woman of great wit, desirous of glory and covetous of honour, and of reason, policy, counsel, and other gifts and talents of nature belonging to a man, full and flowing. Of wit and wiliness she lacked nothing, nor of diligence, study, and business. It's easy to imagine Margaret was a popular character, and her unprecedented number of appearances, and her having the longest speech in this play may support this. It's also been suggested that Shakespeare's portrayal of Margaret could have inspired George Peel when writing his own history play, Edward I, to create a similarly forceful and reviled queen, Eleanor. Throughout the plays, there's so much sort of male horror of of uh, sort of effeminacy. Uh, weak men are characterised as kind of womanish and strong women, which we must talk about yeah. because yeah. this play is some very memorably strong female characters they, they are demonized, they get, they get reacted to quite hysterically by some of the men because of the, they are they are so subversive.
3: Well, it could be, but also it's really important to remember that they're, they're two of them, they're foreigners.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah. The
3: two women are not, they're not British. Um, mm. And I think with Joan, I think it's done rather crudely in the way that, you know, Shakespeare often treats the French in a very particular kind of comic way. Although I think there is a lot yeah. to Joan that doesn't have to be played in that way. But I think you know that you know the she-wolf and that kind of rep- that the she-wolf of France, that kind of reputation of of Margaret is. But I think he writes a character to be admired as much as to be feared and reviled. In in Margaret, I think it's a very. I think we have a very ambivalent relationship to her, and I come away from the plays loving her more than anyone else. Margaret. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt.
2: Following the arrest of the Duchess, Margaret introduces the second act with a symbolic scene of hawking. References to hawking and its terminology are common throughout the works of Shakespeare. On several occasions, he uses the word haggard, meaning untamed hawk, to describe a similarly wild woman. Petruchio says, I have to man my haggard, which sounds rather more perilous than taming a shrew. In act three of Othello, the Moor says of Desdemona, if I do prove her haggard, Though that her jesses were my dear heartstrings, I'd whistle her off and let her down the wind to pray at fortune. Jesses are the tethers a falconer attaches to a bird's foot. The first recorded use of baited breath comes in a merchant of Venice, and also derives from falconry. A hawk might bait its wings, meaning flap without flying, when a falconer has them tethered. This gets them nowhere, but it still leaves them out of breath. How high a pitch his resolution soars, remarks Richard II of his future usurper, Henry Bolingbroke, comparing ambition to a bird in flight. Years before writing that line, Shakespeare made a whole scene of the idea, one in which Margaret, Suffolk, the King, Gloucester and the Cardinal are all out hawking. Here, the metaphor is a bit more on the nose. The King says to the scheming Suffolk, What a point your falcon made, and what a pitch she flew above the rest man and birds are fain of climbing high. Suffolk deflects the imagery onto Gloucester, saying his hawks do tower so well because they know their master loves to be aloft and bears his thoughts above his falcon's pitch. This barely-veiled euphemism devolves into hist-asides between the nobles as Henry obliviously marvels at how God in all his creatures works. While the jibes of the men are quite easily deciphered, while the jibes of the men are quite easily deciphered, Margaret's opening words are a bit stranger. Believe me, Lords, for flying at the brook, I saw not better sport these seven years' day, yet by your leave, the wind was very high, and ten to one, old Joan had not gone out. On the face of it, Margaret is talking about an elderly hawk who can't now brook a high wind but Old Joan inevitably evokes Margaret's countrywoman from the previous play, Joan of Arc. The wind was that high, Margaret says, that it was likely Old Joan had not gone out. Considering that Joan was burnt at the stake, it's hard not to imagine Margaret's words being just as much about flames as falcons. Of all Henry's enemies in this play, Margaret will soar the highest, outliving Suffolk, the Cardinal and York. Like an ember of old Joan wafted hence from France, Margaret will madden the English on their own soil. She will also suffer. Later in this play, we see her distraught, cradling the severed head of Suffolk. Even in her despair, she reminds herself, Grief softens the mind and makes it fearful and degenerate. Think, therefore, on revenge and cease to weep. Margaret will have more to grieve in the play to come, but never lets it soften her mind. Adrian Noble called the part of Margaret a King Lear for women, and Michael Taylor has compared the love triangle of Suffolk, Margaret and Henry to Lancelot, Guinevere and King Arthur. I asked Hayley Backrack why it was that female characters like Margaret and the Duchess of Gloucester disappeared from later history plays
0: yes that's the sort of um irony in some ways there's this these scholars uh jeannie howard and phyllis Rackin, who wrote um this book called engendering a nation it's mm-hmm. sort of the feminist reading of the history plays it's from the like late 90s but it's still just like the text and something they point out is that like the the <laughs> there's a probably coincidental inverse correlation between the size of female roles in a history play and how often it is performed (laughs) and therefore we get this reputation of like oh the history plays have no women and it's like well no we just don't do the history plays that have women in them Mm. Um, obviously we've just named three characters there's like 300 male characters so (laughs) there still are many fewer female characters in even these plays but yeah i mean margaret is she is the character I think she's tied for the most appearances. She's in four plays. The only other character who's in four plays is Bardolph, inexplicably. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, she's, she's incredible. And there's been all these adaptations of the Henry VI plays that sort of try with varying degrees of success to sort of center her as the kind of through line of the three Henry VI plays into Richard Third. And she's just, I mean, she's an amazing, an amazing role. You know, I said before this line, this tiger's, player's heart, tiger's heart, blah, 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 you know the thing. Yeah. Tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide or player's hide, as it was in the pamphlet, is a reference to Margaret. So she, I think, if we're taking that quotation as proof that the Henry VI plays have sort of like risen to some kind of popular consciousness, clearly she is also a character who has risen to popular consciousness. Yeah. And again, we're saying doing 306 plays is proof they're popular. Margaret turning up in four different plays feels like proof that she was popular as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so shes I'm Henry's wife. She's very intense. She does uh, kind of all the things that I think today we wish women in Shakespeare plays would get to do, like leading armies and stabbing people, um, <laughs> and, you know, calling down vengeance upon her enemies. So yeah, I mean, she's incredible and we sort of get, it's interesting, we sort of get a mini version of the things that she goes on to do in Eleanor, the Duchess of Gloucester, who has this wild, so she sort of, she's like a victim of entrapment, you know, (laughs) like she she gets sort of tricked into conjuring uh, these devils and prophesying all these things. And then has this amazing moment that I think about all the time where she sort of is being led away in shame you know, to be exiled on the Isle of Man. What torment. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've never been there, I shouldn't say that. My very good friend just from there, I'm sure it's lovely. Uh, One of the three good
2: female characters is sent to the Isle of Man. Just Sent to, to the Isle of Man. Yeah, what a R. bitter B. joke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's like, she's she's entrapped, she's, oh my God, she's a witch, but she sort of had this moment right before she's leaving where she sort of turns to her husband is like, they're out to get you. Mm your enemies are going to find a means to do this to you as well, and you are not paying attention." And he's just like, no, oh, no, no! Oh, silly Eleanor! Don't worry about it. And it's just one of these great moments where I think, but she's right. Yeah. And that's sort of the feeling I get through the female characters throughout the history plays, which is basically the like feeling that I've written my PhD dissertation about. It's like, but she's right. <laughs> it's true. Um, these sort of glimpses of like, listen to her. Yeah, you're right. Um, sort of run throughout these plays.
2: <laughs> Back to Hotspur and um, yeah. Henry the Fourth. All of the yeah. warnings are absolutely right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, even the other Duchess of Gloucester at the beginning of Richard II, yep. like, but she's right. Yep. <laughs> you, Richard is a problem.
2: Yeah, uh, that's really interesting.
0: Yeah, but I think that something's really interesting, not to sort of keep alluding to the versions that we did, mm. but, you know, obviously an impulse that we had when trying to adapt to Henry VI the is to do what other people have done and put Margaret at the center. We found that really hard to do, mm. partly because she's just not in enough scenes for that. She sort of misses a lot of really important events. So you can't have it only be... <sighs> her perspective.
2: Parachute her in.
0: Yeah, exactly. She's just sort of lurking in the background. Like, I mean, which to be fair is basically what she does in Richard III. She's just sort of like there around at various times, but also because it just feels so fundamental that she is, and I use this in the sort of technical sense of the word, she's an antagonist, Mm. which isn't to say that she's a villain, though I think she also is. But she has to sort of be, when she's not continually working in opposition her role sort of loses a lot of its force. Like she is fundamentally someone who is trying to get things that the entire narrative is trying to stop her from having, you know, she wants power that she can't have. She wants this lover she can't have. She wants her son to be elevated in a way that he can't be. Like she's someone whose role is to sort of batter against the structures placed in front of her, which I think is also what makes her such a compelling role in another way in which she's sort of doing the thing explicitly that we all sort of feel so many Shakespeare heroines do of like just fight like fight these structures and she does that in a really overt way yeah but that sense of fighting is we found just really key to who she is structurally it's really hard to make her a protagonist because she always needs to be a little bit on the outside so that she can be trying to force her way in
2: During the hawking scene at St. Albans, when Henry finally catches on that something is amiss, he says, The winds grow high, so do your stomachs, lords. How irksome is this music to my heart! When such strings jar, what hope of harmony? Here he neatly blends groups of imagery we are now familiar with in these history plays, imagery concerning the guts and discord imagined literally as musical disharmony. Henry proves himself on more than one occasion as easily contented by outward shows of harmony. His tragedy is that he is earnest and expects the same of others. When he hears of a blind man in St Albans regaining his sight, Henry takes him at his word, telling him, Let never day nor night unhallowed pass, but still remember what the Lord hath done. When Gloucester publicly exposes the man, Simcox, as a liar, the king says, O oh God, seest thou this and bearest so long? Meanwhile, his wife Margaret laughs. Later, when she is attempting to turn her husband against his protector, Gloucester, she says, Can you not see, or will you not observe the strangeness of his altered countenance? Reminding and perhaps even shaming the king with the memory of the falsely blind Simcox. Henry is resolute at first and relies on deeper feelings than sight and sound. I speak my conscience, he says. Our kinsman Gloucester is as innocent from meaning treason to our royal person as is the sucking lamb or harmless dove. It's worth pointing out that Henry is also right to trust his conscience. Gloucester is virtually the only presence at court not plotting the king's downfall. But this doesn't stop Margaret from adapting her argument by using Henry's own imagery against him. Seems he a dove. His feathers are but borrowed. For he's disposed as the hateful raven. Is he a lamb? His skin is surely lent him. For he's inclined as is the ravenous wolves. More audacious still is Margaret's reaction when Gloucester is killed and Henry inconsolable. Margaret's manners are tearing off heads. To protect herself and Suffolk, she goes on the offensive. When Henry cries, Ah, woe is me for Gloucester, wretched man. This is how she replies.
1: Be woe for me, more wretched than he is. What, dost thou turn away and hide thy face? I am no loathsome leper, look on me. What, art thou like the adder, waxen deaf? Be poisonous too, and kill thy forlorn queen. Is all thy comfort shut in Gloucester's too? Why then? Dame Margaret was ne'er thy joy. Erect his statue and worship it, and make my image but an alehouse sign. Was I for this nigh wrecked upon the sea, and twice by awkward wind from England's bank drove back again unto my native clime? What boded this, but well forewarning wind, did seem to say, Seek not a scorpion's nest, nor set no footing on this unkind shore? What did I then, but cursed the gentle gusts, And he that loosed them forth their brazen caves, And bid them blow towards England's blessed shore, Or turn our stern upon a dreadful rock? Yet... Aeolus would not be a murderer, but left that hateful office unto thee. The pretty vaulting sea refused to drown me, knowing that thou wouldst have me drowned on shore with tears as salt as sea through thy unkindness. The splitting rocks cowered in the sinking sands and would not dash me with their ragged sides because thy flinty heart, more hard than they, might in thy palace perish, Margaret. As far as I could ken thy chalky cliffs, when from thy shore the tempest beat us back, I stood upon the hatches in the storm and when the dusky sky began to rob my earnest gaping sight of thy land's view I took a costly jewel from my neck, a heart it was, bound in with diamonds and threw it towards thy land. The sea received it and so I wished thy body might my heart. And even with this I lost fair England's view and bid mine eyes be packing with my heart and called them blind and dusky spectacles for losing ken of Albion's wish at coast. Oh, how often have I tempted Suffolk's tongue, the agent of thy foul inconstancy, to sit And witch me, as Ascanius did when he to madding Dido would unfold his father's axe, commenced in burning Troy. Am I not witched like her, or thou not false like him? Ay, me! I can no more die, Margaret, for Henry weeps that thou dost live so long.
2: Ruthless, logical, packed with irony. While Margaret herself has acted like one of the viperous worms gnawing the bowel of the Commonwealth, it is Henry that she compares to an adder, waxen deaf. Blindness returns in my favourite line, where Margaret calls her eyes blind and dusky spectacles. She presents to Henry a romanticised account of her voyage to England, in which she curses her eyes for losing sight of England's coast. Hiding her ambitions in plain sight, Margaret masks her desire for the throne as an innocent and ardent love of England. Even more outrageously, she accuses Henry of inconstancy, even as she waves her lover's mouth at him. How often have I tempted Suffolk's tongue, the agent of thy foul inconstancy. Some have criticised this speech for being confused and disordered, and it's certainly packed with imagery, crawling with scorpions and snakes, and almost bursting with stormy details. It's as if Margaret is trying to throw Henry off by hurling wave after wave and gust after gust at him. Is there anything, though, in, in the language... I know you've worked on the later um, history plays. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in the language that you've come across where you've noticed you know, a, a significant difference from these, these earlier ones? Yeah,
3: I feel like there's something that's much more immediate about these plays, um, mm. much more direct. I think... What I love most about having worked on all three plays and done the edit from the three plays is, is the progression of language and how that creates a really interesting landscape for the, for the story. So I think what's really great about part one, um, although it seems probably the crudest of the three, there is something about the language in that which is very um, sh- uh, chivalric, heroic about honour, like holding on to that Henry V ideal. And then as you move into part two, part two I think is probably my favourite of the trilogy, is it becomes so much more political and language of persuasion and you, you suddenly get a lot more private scenes that are going on. Yeah. And that's really interesting because it just sets up a very intimate kind of atmosphere because then yeah. part three is basically, a, a, for want of a better word, it's an episodic and very direct kind of roll call of battles. I think there are more battles in part three than any other Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the, the language becomes very repetitive, the language becomes very direct, it becomes very violent mm. in that way. So I love charting the language between the three. So I think there is some, it's very sophisticated how you to do that.
2: Parts one and three of Henry VI, they're entirely in verse. Another reason scholars have been inclined to think they were written close together than originally supposed. In his early days as a playwright, Shakespeare returns frequently to his schooling in classical rhetoric. The language of learning in grammar schools was Latin, and Shakespeare will have studied the likes of Cicero and Terence. His plays are full of anaphora and epistrophe, techniques of persuasion where words are repeated at the beginning or ends of a phrase. In part one, Warwick says, Between two hawks, which flies the higher pitch? Between two dogs, which hath the deeper mouth? Between two blades, which bears the better temper? between two horses which doth bear him best, between two girls which hath the merriest eye, I have perhaps some shallow spirit of judgment, but in these nice sharp quillets of the law, good faith, I am no wiser than a door. As we have seen in speeches from both parts one and two, they are also rich with animal imagery, as dense with information as this play's full title the first part of the contention betwixt the two famous houses of York and Lancaster with the death of the good Duke Humphrey and the banishment and death of the Duke of Suffolk and the tragical end of the proud Cardinal of Winchester with the notable rebellion of Jack Cade and the Duke of York's first claim unto the crown.
0: Yeah. So it's succinct. <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, I always like to imagine someone crying that out outside the theatres. Yeah. Um, yeah. Henry VI doesn't get much of a look in um, is this um, sort of our fault for the sense of franchise that we've picked up from Hemings and Condell and, and called them, you know, Henry VI Part 1 and 2? And should we really call these, well, at least this, the second two installments, maybe War of the Roses Part Part 1 and 2?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a lot of work still to be done on this question of, like, when and how has the, is the history play as a concept kind of solidifying? And there's a lot of different views of, like, Maybe at the time that the plays were first being performed, this is still sort of like a new genre in certain ways. People aren't necessarily yet thinking of, like, ah, oh, history plays, one of the like four genres or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so then by the time you're getting to the first folio, and that's when they first get titled Henry VI Part One, Two, Three, and are put in that order, you part of the effort of that is to sort of like wrestle them into a recognizable genre shape. And so, you know, of course, it's like, why would we not go off of the titles that they're being given at that time? But then at the same time, you know, you even look at the Henry the plays, Henry the fourth part two, King Henry does not show up until what, like act three, scene one or something like that. Yeah. So already the, our assumption that the title character is the protagonist, while usually true, sort of that never kind of works it works with certain histories. It works with Henry V. It works with Richard III. Mm. But there's also, you know, the Henry VI plays, even the Henry IV plays where the title is really more, I mean, it, it seems to be sort of operating in the way that the chronicle histories of the time were structured. You know, the sort of history books that Shakespeare read where you'd organize, the writers would often organize things by reign and anything that happened in that person's reign, even though it had nothing to do with them as the king necessarily, would sort of go under the heading of like, Okay, this is all the stuff about King John, and then you sort of go off on whatever political tangents. And so, in some ways, it's like where was the titling of the history plays in that way, in this effort to make history them seem historical and like this is a genre, this is a thing, and we're going to title them like their chronicles, even though sometimes you know, poor Henry the you know, doesn't show up until halfway through his own play. Mm. So, I think that maybe it's it's not just us; it's not just that the titles are misleading us into thinking that the protagonist is someone that it's not. It's that actually the title's not kind of trying to direct us in that way at all. It's almost like calling it like, Oh yeah, this play is called 1403.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It seems like suddenly a lot of playwrights were turning to English history for, for subject matter. Is it more likely to think that it's a kind of disorganized sudden passion, or is there any possibility that it was some kind of organized, cross-company epic going on because you have people like was it green who wrote edward the first you obviously have marlowe's edward the second you have these little in between sort of filling in history plays like woodstock um mm-hmm. is there any chance do you think that they were, it was all a big kind of uh, organized effort or just a trend i wish
0: I hope i hope i wish it was an organized yeah, me effort. Too. <laughs> i think it's a trend yeah. i think it's a trend you know i think it's like um, this is I always make this comparison because to me it's like they're like comic book movies it's like Marvel and DC didn't decide like oh my gosh we're gonna do this epic pantheon it's like oh they're doing them and they're making a ton of money yeah yeah I went in on that so I'm gonna do it too and I think that's why you sort of get the place sort of following on it following along on each other and filling in each other's gaps because mm. it's like oh well their Henry V play did really well so I'm gonna do a Henry the Sixth. I mean you know it's 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 building on what's marketable is sort of my suspicion of what's happening it's yeah people are doing what what sells Mm.
2: and it it goes some way to explaining the slightly retconning prequels which are sort of they make more sense in the in the movie world because it's everyone can remember the movie or go and buy it but in the theatrical world when you say oh he went back and wrote henry the sixth but you immediately think well but theatergoers might not have like necessarily seen part 2 and part 3 but if they're constantly being put on and referenced by all kinds of different plays it makes a lot of sense that suddenly like you know we can do a whole play and the threat of Richard the arrival is sort of the driving force because everyone knows yeah, about
0: it yeah yeah exactly exactly because even though Shakespeare hadn't written Richard the 3rd there were Richard the 3rd plays written by other people that already existed so they can be, people are bringing in the sort of knowledge that they have from other versions of these same stories.
2: The complicated issue of Theatre Remembered takes us on to the textual history of this play. The quarto edition bearing that paragraph of a title was published in 1594, not attributed to Shakespeare, and thought to be a memorial reconstruction of that play. This would entail an actor or a few actors, or someone close to the production, reciting the play for a printer. Two more similar quartos followed until the 1623 version, printed in the first folio, bearing the title Henry VI Part Two. This version is another third as long as the quarto, and appears to be based on Shakespeare's own manuscript. It has what Norman Sanders calls features associated with the author's habits of composition. These include calling Queen Margaret by the Duchess of Gloucester's name four times in one scene, certain characters' names being likely names of actors in Shakespeare's company, And stage directions having a more authorial bent than a practical one. In the quarto version, The Contention, evidence of reconstruction in action includes characters leaving the stage abruptly and for no apparent reason, historical confusions, and clunky paraphrasing. Lines glossed from other plays indicate that someone is mixing up material or trying to fill in the blanks. Norman Sanders tells us that the fullness and accuracy of some of the roles in the quarto suggest the actors who originally played the parts of Warwick, Suffolk, and Clifford may have been the ones helping to create this version of the text. Others have argued that the quarto version is an early draft of Shakespeare's play, and others still suggest that it is an original play by another author who Shakespeare copied for his own Henry VI Part II. It is certainly possible, given the contemporary appetites that there was more than one Henry VI play in existence, Such was the desire for historical theatre that Scott Macmillan and Sally Beth Maclean have speculated that two companies, the Queen's Men and the Earl of Leicester's Men, were formed expressly to offer the population the story about the founding of England and what it meant to be
3: English. It seems he gets more interested in the, the kind of body politic figure. So whoever the king is, therefore creates the the kind of feeling across the lands that become Mm. like a epicenter of um, opinion, emotion, social, economic, everything. And so when you go into those great moments when going into the tavern, for example, in Henry IV, that sense of a a community that needs release from this very kind kind of Puritan king really, in Henry yeah. IV, and then in Henry the V like those great moments where he goes in disguise around the camp. Uh, and there's some wonderful, I think very satirical moments in Henry the Sixth. I think it's a very satirical comment on the world. So you get the, for example, Simcock who, who pretends to be blind, mm.
0: um,
3: that kind of sense of satire. And, and also John Cade, of course, who is an incredible character. Um, it feels like he's a bit wittier with his observations
2: Jack Cade appears in Act 4 to lead a rebellion of disaffected commoners against the king. The fact that he is a pawn of the Duke of York enlisted to test the public support of him doesn't obstruct the extraordinary scenes in which Cade and his followers imagine a proto-communist utopia. There shall be no money, declares Cade to an ecstatic crowd. All shall eat and drink on my score. All men will agree like brothers and worship me their lord. In other words... All men will be equal, but of course, some more equal than others. Very quickly, we see Cade's revolution become sinister. Here he is handing down his own form of justice to his prisoner, Lord Say.
1: Thou hast most traitorously corrupted the youth of the realm in erecting a grammar school. And whereas before our forefathers had no other books but the score and the tally, thou hast caused printing to be used. And contrary to the king, his crown and dignity, thou hast built a paper mill. It will be proved to thy face that thou hast men about thee that usually talk of a noun and a verb and such abominable words as no Christian ear can endure to hear. Thou hast appointed justices of peace to call poor men before them about matters they were not able to answer. Moreover, thou hast put them in prison, and because they could not read, thou hast in them!
2: Inarguably the most gruesome scene in the trilogy, Cade commands that the decapitated heads of Lord Say and his son-in-law are placed on poles and are made to kiss at every corner as Cade's soldiers charge th- through the streets. While this gory detail was based on history, Cade's rebellion was not quite the uprising of commoners Shakespeare presents us with. Among the revolting ranks were artisans and landowners angry at the national debt created by England's failed conquest of France. In his anarchic portrait of Cade, Shakespeare was perhaps also drawing on John of Leyden, prophet and brief self-installed King of Munster in 1535. Like Cade, he kept his deprived followers sweet with promises while claiming multiple wives for himself. My mouth shall be the Parliament of England, Cade gloats. Shakespeare clearly intends him as a figure of fun, and there's a good reason to suppose he was played by his theatre company's resident clown, William Kemp. When York describes Cade, he says, In Ireland have I seen this stubborn Cade oppose himself against a troop of kerns and fought so long till that his thighs with darts were almost like a sharp-quilled porpentine. And in the end, being rescued, I have seen him caper upright like a wild morisco, shaking the bloody darts as he is bells. This reference to Morris dancing, not found in the quarto, is presumably an invention to fit the talents of Kemp. Cade meets his end at the hands of Christopher Iden, a Kentish gentleman surprised by the would-be revolutionary on his quiet walk. Cade loses the ensuing duel, and Iden presents the head of Cade to the king, gaining in return a knighthood. Iden is a strangely flat, idealised character, emblematic of the new breed of independent English gentleman. Having Cade stumble into his garden and effectively gift him a promotion in status renders Iden's character slightly absurd. And while his name and garden might have an Edenic ring, the restoration of order he presents to Henry is very short-lived. No sooner has the King celebrated the overthrow of Cade than Richard Plantagenet returns from Ireland to declare civil war in earnest. Joining their father are the Bastard Boys of York and the Earls of Warwick and Salisbury. On the Lancastrian side are Henry, Margaret, Lord Clifford and the Duke of Somerset. In the Battle of St Albans that follows, Richard Plantagenet kills Clifford, while his son, the future Richard III, kills his father's sworn enemy, Somerset. In the aftermath, Margaret urges her husband to fly, asking him what she has been wondering since they first met. What are you made of? For all its subplots, Henry VI Part II is, as I said at the beginning, remarkably tight and focused. Each apparent episodic tangent serves to intensify the pressure on Henry and bring out further unspoken resentments. However, its cohesion does not mean that Shakespeare was now writing on his own. I asked Hayley Backrack about the nature of collaboration across all three parts of Henry VI.
0: Yeah, so the most recent um, Oxford edition, Oxford Complete Works, uh, proposes uh, Marlowe and uh-huh. I believe Kidd as the two hands that it thinks are the sort of predominant potential other writers. They think that Shakespeare has a very, very small. Portion of Henry VI, part one. And I actually can't remember now who the other writers that they propose for that one are. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think Marlowe is obviously the sort of like headline interesting and like sort of new suggestion that came out of this particular sort of analysis that the editors of this edition did. Mm. Um, and is I think just from a like fan perspective, like obviously such a compelling idea. Like I want the Shakespeare and Love sequel that is yeah. <laughs> Shakespeare and Marlowe, you know, writing Henry the Sixth part two together. Yeah, um, And uh, certainly it's, you know, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about these kinds of like mathematical stylometric analyses and stuff. But certainly as a thought experiment, thinking about, margaret as in some ways a Marlowe heroine and comparing her to some of the women that Marlowe writes in like massacre at paris and edward the you yeah. you're sort of like ah, i mean it makes it does kind of make sense um yeah
2: is there a stronger case for collaboration with part two and three or is it mainly part one that people say is
0: all of them seem to be collaborative so it sort of is this narrative that Appears to be emerging that at the beginning of his career and at the end of his career Mm. Shakespeare really turned to collaboration and sort of went it alone in the middle, and yeah, I mean, which kind of makes sense from what we understand of kind of the way that like new writers often began Mm. by collaborating with more experienced ones, and so maybe it makes sense that this actor who's sort of beginning to turn to writing would be like, okay, well, pair with these sort of old hands, and we'll see, we'll see what you can do. Yeah, interesting. But yeah.
2: Like, uh, it's particularly interesting, the sort of men, the sort of slightly older older um, theatrical veterans helping out at yeah. perhaps him doing the same at the other end.
0: Exactly, yeah, which is certainly not always the model of collaboration that we see. It's often sort of equal, equal partnerships in terms of levels of experience and stuff. Mm. But that definitely seems to be what Shakespeare did, as far as we can tell, is these sort of mentory collaborations, as you say, at the beginning with him as the junior partner, and then at the end with Fletcher as the junior partner, air quotes.
2: I'd love, I mean, I'd kill, as I, I suppose many would, to know a bit more about the, um, the the status of a playwright in rehearsals and whether or not when stars did come along, like clowns and people <laughs> like Richard Burbage, how much say they had. And yeah, no, I'm just going to give this a once over actually, Will. Um,
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and certainly within, once you get, we're like early in his career for this, but you know, once you get into the Lord Chamberlain's men and the shareholding structure that they later had, one has to assume as a shareholder, Richard Burbage had quite a lot of say and um, quite a lot of power to kind of, yeah, give his own roles a once over and Mm. see what was going on there.
2: In part one of Henry VI, we saw trouble brewing. Today in part two, it has risen to the surface. And next time in part three we will see it boil over in epic fashion battles dethronements and murders galore a huge thank you to Haley backrack Owen Horsley and Danielle Farrow join us all again next time as we go full tilt into the Wars of the Roses and until then happy reading <music>